please forgive me. I got on a flight from Chicago last night that was supposed to take me to London, but ended up taking me to Manchester. And so I have come here after continuously traveling the entire night by way of Huddersfield, of all places. Uh, I have a unique and interesting part of my personality that I can function for several days without sleep. But the less I sleep, the less inhibited I feel in saying what I wish to say, which is not always a good thing, but it does make for interesting talks. I was the president of the MSA of our university, which was one of the largest public universities in uh, the United States of America. I had a student body uh, of over 30,000, I should say, a general student body of over 30,000. Our MSA had its own mosque. It had its own uh, 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 several, mashallah, institutions, and it's still running strong to this day. Our MSA was unique in the sense that there seems to be a tension, at least in the United States, I'm not sure if it's like that over here in, in the UK, but there seems to be a tension in student Muslim groups between people who want to um, do something that, that leans more toward activism versus people who want to uh, run a, an organization that leans more towards spirituality. Is that an issue over here? I don't know. So people seem to be at loggerheads with one another with regards to this tension. And in fact, if you observe what's happening on the national scene in the United States of America and the Muslim community, this tension is actually pulling more and more. And I know it affects England. I know there's a, a England and the UK. I, I apologize, there's someone from Scotland here. I know it, it affects the UK. Uh, and there is some interplay back and forth with the UK, although the UK, because I feel like because it uh, has more proximity toward the uh, Muslim world, it's kind of like halfway between where America is and halfway between where the Muslim world is. But on a global stage, I see whatever fitna starts in America, it's only a matter of time. First, it's going to fly to Heathrow in Manchester, and then it's going to make its way to the Muslim world as well. Uh, and so that's just the, 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 the age that we live in, that trends, cultural trends globally, they start from the West and they kind of ripple eastward from there. So it's good. It's a hadith of Rasulullah that the happy person, happy is not the one who's dancing to the happy song. When the Rasulullah talks about happy, the happy one is the one who is written amongst the felicitous in the decree and the judgment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's not the one who's happy and having fun right now. Because there are many people who are having fun right now, that their destiny is not a happy destiny. And there are many people who are right now going through difficulty, but their destiny is one of eternal happiness. The happy one is the one who learns the lesson from someone else's misfortune. You don't have to go through the same, uh, through the same difficulties in order to learn the same lesson. You can learn from observing from other people so you don't have to. Uh, uh, go through those misfortunes. You can do things the easy way or the hard way. The sunnah is to do things the easy way. 
So our MSA, I'm very proud to say, this is before I went to any of these places to study deen, and before I studied qira'at, and before I studied the usul of this, that, and the other thing, and before I taught aqidah classes or any of that, when I was just a university student, uh, taking uh, Arabic and Turkic languages of, of, of Central Asia, and taking biochemistry, any biochem people over here? No. Come on, man. There, I'm sure that room is filled with people who want to be a doctor, right? You have to take some biochem for that, don't you? At any rate, back from those days, for whatever reason, uh, the group of people we were working with, we had this understanding that the two of them, there's A, there's not necessarily any tension between them, but the higher realization is what? For either of them to be true, and for either of them to be sincere, and for either of them to be accepted by Allah Ta'ala, they have to both be commensurate with one another. They have to work hand in hand. If your spirituality involves you learning fiqh, and involves you, you know, making dhikr, and involves you fasting and whatnot, without care for what's going on around you, immediately around you, both amongst Muslim students and, their, and, and concern for their welfare, as well as that of students of other faith, as well as that of other minorities on campus that are being uh, uh, not treated fairly, as well as not having concern for what? See, we have the human appeal banner here, right? Where's, uh, where's, where's Omar when you need him? Last time he was the president of FOSIS, I spoke at the, the, uh, the conference in Brighton. Omar, if you're listening to this, uh, listening to this, or you see a recording, I'm calling you out. What are you too good for FOSIS now? Have you moved on? Are you not FOSIS for life like I am MSA for life? Uh, uh, th- th- these things are important. These things are important. Islamic Relief. I work for Islamic Relief just like Omar works for Human Appeal and you have Ummah Welfare Trust and all of these wonderful organizations that are doing this type of work, not just for Muslims, not just for Muslims, for people of any faith and every faith, anyone who is downtrodden, anyone who is poor, anyone who is weak, anyone who is being discriminated against, anyone who is having a hard time, is down on their uh, fortune, to do the work for those people and to stick up for those people. That someone should see you, that you have your beard, you have your head covered, you have your hijab, you have your niqab. A man or a woman should see you. You should, you're dressed in traditional clothes or you're dressed in whatever the clothing of your place is, but you're distinguishably a Muslim. People see you as a Muslim and they know they can come and talk to you and they can come and get help from you. Whether it's advice, whether it's help with dealing with the administration, whether it's a person who's hungry, who knows this person who has a beard, this person who has a hijab on, this woman who has a niqab on, this brother who has uh, 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 you know, has a kufi on his head or whatever. This person, we can rely on them. We can seek help from them. We can ask them, you know, can you watch my bag while I, you know, go and do something? Or we can rely on that person to help us when we're down. This is very important. This is one of the sunan of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And this is a sign of your spirituality. Do you not know, it's the first, uh, the first chapter of Sahih Bukhari. Right? So mashallah, our good uh, uh, brother Asim was saying that in my house we have three madhabs and people from this school and that school and people follow all sorts of different types of, uh, uh, you know, d- different types of trends within Islam or boycott all of them altogether. And, you know, some people pray, you know, with their hands here and their hands here and their hands God knows where. Some people don't pray at all. What is one of the distinguishing characteristics of Islam? These differences are great. They're wonderful. These people are students of knowledge can learn all about them. What is a distinguishing characteristic of Islam? 
that has nothing to do with any of these differences, that, 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 that supersedes all of these differences, that superexists all of these differences. The first, the first chapter of the opening salvo of Sahih Bukhari is what? Is the Kitab Kayfa Bada al Wahi, the book about how revelation began, revelation started. Rasulullah when he received Iqra and he had this, this interaction with Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam, he himself was in doubt about what happened. The experience is overwhelming. This is something people don't realize, don't understand. One of the reasons the Sahaba has such a high rank and high maqam in this ummah is what? Is because we live with the benefit of hindsight of 1400 years of civilization. You can sit in the FOSA's conference and see that there are people of all sorts of different ethnic and uh, social backgrounds, economic backgrounds who are gathered together, that someone is from the Indian subcontinent and someone is an Arab and somebody is new to the religion and somebody is from a, a family that's, uh, you know, their lineage has been Muslim for 1400 years, somebody is from every continent of the world. You have the hindsight of all of these things as what? As providential verifiers of the truth of the message of the Prophet ﷺ. But the Sahaba anhum, they didn't have any of those things. Many of them died before any of these predictions and prophecies of Rasulullah ﷺ. All of which came true. They died before they even saw with their own eyes that this came true. But because he said it, they believed him. This is one of the many reasons they have a rank over the rest of the ummah. So if that's their condition, imagine Rasulullah wasallam himself. Because nobody gave him a storybook in which he gets to see the architecture of the masajid of the Ottoman Empire afterward. He was, he was what? He just disliked idol worship. He disliked indecency. He disliked oppression. And so he would stay away from the mushrikeen of Quraysh and he would retreat up in the cave of Hira and he would worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a way which is known to him and Allah tabarak wa ta'ala and this overwhelming experience happens to him. And so what happens is that he comes back to his wife Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha zamiluni zamiluni cover me up cover me up and he's like in cold sweat and shaking because what he saw he doesn't nobody told him what's going to happen this is like this is not after Uhud and Badr and the Fatah and all of this other stuff this is not like at that later time after the Isra and Mi'raj is all done this is something out of the blue it's something he doesn't he, you know he's it's also new to him he's processing it how to say the Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha uh, uh, how to say the Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha console him she says kalla wallahi la yukhzik Allahu abadan kalla la yukhzik Allahu abadan o la yukhzinka Allahu abadan no, indeed, this thing, you know, khashitu ala nafsi, you say that you fear for yourself, it's the, the, the matter is completely the opposite. Why? Because Allah Ta'ala will never disgrace you, He'll never humiliate you, He'll never make you grieve. And then she gives the proofs for why Allah Ta'ala would never do that, which is what? Tahmil al-kal, you're the one who carries the one who has no, no, uh, no one to inherit from them. The one who has no heir, the one who has nobody, no close relative to carry, carry them. Anyone here speak Punjabi? No, yes, right? Right, tahmilul kal. This word kal is actually a very strange word in the Arabic language, right? Al-kalala, it comes in Surah, uh, Surah Al-Nisa. And I always find it very interesting because the, the meaning of it, even people who are native speakers of Arabic, it's a strange word. It's not a word that you use like in daily speech or whatever. So if, I, if you ever, mashallah, hear the word kalala or al-kal with the shadda on the lamb, it means kalla. The one who has nobody, to, the one who's alone, he has nobody to inherit. One of the strange, strange things that kind of works out funny. 
So he says, right, tahmilul kal. The one who had nobody else, for, uh, to, uh, to, literally had no heir, no close relative to take care of them. You're the one who carries them. Taksibul ma'dum, the one who is so broke, right? Ma'dum literally means a person who doesn't exist. Like it's a, it's a metaphor. That person who's so broke, he doesn't even exist. That person who has so little money, he even doesn't have enough money to exist, right? It's a metaphor, it's an expression, right? Right? You, 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 right? You, uh, you're the one who, when a guest comes, you honor the guest. Honoring the guest for some reason used to be, until very recently, a universal, uh, uh, value, uh, in the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ. For some reason, it seems to be abandoned and jettisoned. For reasons known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I have no idea why. Because a guest comes with his own risk. He comes with his own provision that Allah Ta'ala has meted, meted out for him or her. It's not like the guest comes to your house and eats your food. The guest will only eat the risk that they have allotted for them by Allah Ta'ala. But because you accepted that guest, that person who Allah and His Rasul ﷺ love, because of that, they eat their own risk. They bring the risk with them and they eat the risk that they bring with them into the house, the provision that they bring with them into the house. But when they leave the sins of the house, leave with them. Right? تُعِينُ عَلَى نَوَائِبِ الْحَقِّ Right? One of the things Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha uh, uh, said to the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa as a proof that, that what Allah ta'ala is not going to humiliate him. That the spirituality of what just happened is true. Is what? وَتُعِينُ عَلَى نَوَائِبِ الْحَقِّ That you're the one, the, the, the vicissitudes, the vengeance, the vengeance that, that, that time and circumstance takes against a person, for standing with the truth, you're the one who stands with them. Is speaking the truth going to make you friends? No. Is being Muslim going to make you friends? Absolutely not. And if anything from the seerah we learn, we learn that the first set of people who are going to resent you for practicing the deen properly is your own relatives and close people. Your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, your close people. If you practice the deen as much as you can. And I'm not talking about like, uh, super insular, um, uh, super, uh, you know, uptight, judgmental, f- fundamentalist, like closed-minded weirdo type. That's not, that deen is not our deen in the first place. That's not what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa came with in the first place. I'm talking about good akhlaq. I'm talking about even a smile is charity. I'm talking about speaking the truth. I'm talking about doing all of these things, helping other people. The first people who are going to resent you is what? Is the people who are closest to you. If Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as a matter of aqidah, we believe he's the nicest person who Allah Ta'ala ever created. If Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his own relatives, family members, tribesmen are going to resent him, for, for what? For speaking the truth, despite being the nicest person Allah Ta'ala ever created. What chance do you and me have? We're never going to be as nice as him sallallahu alayhi wasallam. What chance do you and me have that we're going to be able to Walk this path and tread this path and nobody's going to give us any difficulty. The point is not to make enemies out of people. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam never wanted to make an enemy out of anybody. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his prayers were for everybody. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah Ta'ala created him in a certain way, right? Allah Ta'ala created him to be what? The, the manifestation of his mercy in his creation. And so Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam used to make dua for everybody, for his ummah, the good people in his ummah, the sinners of his ummah, for the people who didn't believe in him, the people who didn't believe in Allah Ta'ala. 
Allah Ta'ala says in his book, he says, seek forgiveness for them or don't seek forgiveness for them. When talking about the munafiqeen, who are the munafiqeen? The hypocrites, the people who profess Islam outwardly and inside the reality, inside their heart is the reality of disbelief. Allah Ta'ala says that these people are that these people are the inmates of the lowest of the, the, the lowest dungeon of the hellfire. The worst of Allah Ta'ala's creation. Allah Ta'ala says regarding them to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He said what? Seek forgiveness for them or do not seek forgiveness for them. If you sought forgiveness for them 70 times, Allah Ta'ala wouldn't forgive them. It's a hadith of Sahih Bukhari in which Rasulullah said, If I knew seeking forgiveness for them more than 70 times would have made a difference, I would have done so. The point of this, the point of this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, proclamation from Allah Ta'ala is not to say that you have to do it more than 70 times. It means what? 70 is a metaphor for a large number that, that could go to infinity. That as much as you seek forgiveness for them, it's not going to benefit. He said, if I knew more than 70 times would have helped, I would have sought forgiveness more than 70 times. Being like this with the creation of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So coming back to what? Coming back to this idea of you have, you know, this false idea that there's some tension between uh, being a spiritual person uh, and and being an activist, or being somebody who wants to change the world around them, having concern for the world around them. This idea of tension, this is a an anxiety of Western civilization that Muslims have taken upon their shoulders. It is alien to our tradition. Our tradition has issues and problems. This is not one of them. You will not hear Ghazali talking about it. You will not hear Abu Hanifa talking about it. You will not hear Malik talking about it. You will not hear Abdul Qadir Jailani talking about it. You will not hear Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Rajab talking about it. This is an issue that's alien to our culture. As an idea, it's a foreign idea, an alien idea that somebody has to somehow pick between their spirituality and between... uh, uh, servicing their fellow human being, serving mankind, making the world a better place. Making the world a better place, which hopefully is the reason why people want to go into activism. This is a whole separate issue that not everybody wants to be an activist. Not everybody wants to even serve the deen for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. Some people want to do it just because they like to have the mic in their hand. Which is very dubious for me to say because I actually happen to have the mic in my hand right now. So you make dua for me as well. And I make dua for you. But the idea is that all of these things, whether it's the khutbah, whether it's leading the prayer, whether, whether it's the recitation of the Qur'an or coming to the masjid, or whether it's feeding the poor, or whether it's what? Uh, uh, helping the person who is downtrodden, helping the person who is oppressed. The reality is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will only accept one reason for doing any of these things, which is what? For His sake. That you do it for His sake. Any other reason you do any of these things, Allah ta'ala won't accept them. If you understand that, you can understand why all of these things should fit together in one person. Now, the problem we have is this, is that doing things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very uh, inexpedient. It's very what? Inexpedient. So for example, I can tell you as a person who has experience raising funds uh, for different charities, that if this was a fundraiser, which thank God it's not, if this was a fundraiser, if I made an appeal for everybody to give for XYZ uh, you know, cause, and there are a number of heartbreaking causes that we should all give for, if I made the appeal and left the box, 
I can tell you that there's a, a, a quantitatively predictable shortfall that we'll have in how much we collect versus if I were to say who's going to give X amount of dollars, who's going to give Y amount of dollars, who's going to give Z amount of dollars. Why? Because we are influenced by seeing other people around us. And I'm not necessarily saying that the people who uh, give by raising their hands or the people who raise money like that by raising their hands, there's something wrong with it. Rasulullah also used to uh, raise funds publicly in his masjid like this that people used to give in order to encourage one another. But the idea is that we have this, we have this, this, this concept in our deen that the best charity is the charity that's given uh, where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Meaning what? It's so secret. This is a metaphor for that it's so secret that even a person hides it from themselves, much less from any other creation. Why? Because it's supposed to be a secret between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So using charity as an example, sincerity for the sake of Allah Ta'ala is very inefficient, inexpedient. It's very what? Inefficient and very inexpedient. And we will find there are a lot of the teachings of the deen in order to affect change in the world around us. They seem very inefficient and inexpedient. Now we have a set of knuckleheads in the ummah that have seen this inefficiency and this lack of expediency and said, well, all of these other uh, you know, colonial hegemonic powers have uh, impre- you know, impressed their, you know, the, the boot of their oppression, both on their own populaces and on the uh, populaces of uh, the Muslim world, which, I mean, in some way it's kind of true. Okay? They've, they've done this and now we have to fight back, you know, fight fire with fire in order to do what? In order to uh, uh, free ourselves from them. Okay? So this is a very interesting, interesting uh, 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 thought process. Some of these movements are non-violent. Some of these movements are horrible, violent. Right? The easy uh, group to take a cheap shot at because of their own knuckle-headed ways is what? Like ISIS and Manshabahum. Right? That what? We're going to make the caliphate and we're going to do it by having the same total war and like collateral damage and all this other nonsense that, that are not part of our uh, traditional way of doing things. We're going to just jettison that tradition because it's what? It's inexpedient. We want to affect a change in the world around us and to hell with the spirituality. You know, like uh, you literally you see soldiers that don't know how to read a page from Mus'haf, but they're saying we're uh, you know establishing some sort of caliphate or whatever. These type of knuckleheaded people that are what? Because of the lack of expediency, they've shifted the means by which they wish to uh, change the world around them. And we all know that this is not working well. It's not working well for the Muslims. It's not working well for people of other faiths. It's not working well in the Muslim lands, where the majority of the people that these people kill and harm are. And it's not working well in the uh, lands of people of other faiths, where they're causing disruption and causing Islam to have a... Uh, a bad picture, a picture that it really doesn't deserve because it's not based on the teachings of Islam. Look at Mosul, where probably where uh, Brother Omar is all joking aside right now. It is a, a it is an ancient metropolis uh, of the uh, Near East and it is an ancient metropolis of what? Of, uh, of, of the Muslim lands. Of the Muslim lands. And it is one of the centers from which the movement to counter and push back the uh, uh, invasion of the the uh, invasion of the 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 the, the uh, Afrang, right? The word crusader is how the crusaders, the crusades, self-identify. The Muslims never considered them to be crusaders, nor did they consider them to be Christians or representatives of Christianity, because 
Muslims had Christians in their lands. That they didn't have these types of weird, like total wars and like brutal and bloody conflicts with. The idea that the Muslims had is that these people live in this kind of weird far off place, which is this barbaric place where there's no laws, people don't have rights to buy, sell, trade, feudal system, all of these other things, etc., etc. And this is a, a clash between what? In the Muslim chronicles, the word that they used to use for the, for the crusaders is not salibiyin. This is a, an English, or sorry, a European term that is transduced into Arabic. It literally means crusader later on. The contemporaries, they said that this is a war that we have with the uh, Faringa, with the, 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 the Franks. It's a cognate for the word foreigner also in the Persian language. That these people are just this kind of foreign barbarian horde and they threw them back out. Otherwise, the, the Christians lived in the Muslim lands for centuries as they live in the Muslim lands now. In fact, if nothing else, with the advent of modern nationalism, that's the biggest calamity that hit the uh, uh, Christian populations in the Muslim world. Bigger than any sort of theocratic rule or bigger than any sort of uh, backlash against crusades or whatever. Right? Muslims, uh, Christians have been living with Muslims for centuries since the very beginning. I remember I was sitting, mashallah, by Asim says, tell stories because people like hearing stories. You become too abstract and people, you lose them, right? So I'll tell you a story. I'm sitting next to a, uh, uh, I sit next to funny people in airplanes and they could probably say the same thing. So I was sitting next to a carpenter on an airplane and, uh, you know, making small talk and then after a while, he goes, well, uh, you know, I'm going to be frank with you. You seem like a nice guy, and I'm assuming you're, you're Muslim. I'm like, yeah, I'm Muslim. Uh, he, he, goes, he goes, you know, you, you seem like a nice guy, but, you know, I just can't get over this. How come the Quran, you know, says that you've got to kill all the infidels? I go, look, man. I go, aside from some sort of long theological or exegetical discussion I can have with you, which you're not prepared for and you're not probably interested in, I'll just ask you a couple of simple questions. Uh, he says, he says, okay, go ahead. I said, do you think we take our religion seriously? I said, look at me. Do you think I take my religion seriously? He goes, yeah. Do you think that I, people like myself take our religion much more seriously than the average American does? He goes, yeah, I do. I go, if it was written, I said, Syria, Syria has like a 30%, because this is obviously before Syria was engulfed in war, Allah Ta'ala helped its people, whatever faith they're of. So Syria has a 30% Christian population, Palestine has a 35% Christian population, Iraq has a 10% Christian population, almost all of which is decimated now post the, the second Iraq war, uh, uh, you know, Egypt has a 10% Christian population. Uh, uh, again, because of what's happened literally in the last couple of years, all of these populations that were living stably have now become unstable, and this is not something that, you know, we only complain to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about the bizarre, uh, 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 the bizarre circumstances that have taken over the Muslim world and the horrible circumstances that have taken over the Muslim world. I said, all of these countries have these huge Christian populations. I said, do you think if our book told us, right, to kill all of, to kill all of them, that so many centuries passed without a Geneva Convention and without any sort of concept of war crimes or any of these things, do you think we would, would have left one of you alive in our lands? He goes, no, I don't think you would have. I go, thank you. Right? It's not. It's it's not like that. Right. So coming back to the the coming back to the issue that we're talking about, we have now these people who think that 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 what that we have to have like ad hoc uh, goals that we need to affect in the society, the world around us, right? And they're not getting done. So we have to use different means in order to achieve and attain our goals. And. I tell you this, that this, you know, this kind of reductionist thinking, which is a hallmark of a, 
uh, of a family of philosophies known as modernism. I have a whole like seven-hour presentation on modernism one day. If you're interested in, in in doing so, you can like I'll send you like a copy of it or a tape or whatever. If you want to, you can go through it. If there's some kind of geeky people who are really interested. Maybe I can come and do a presentation in your in your school or whatever about it. Modernism doesn't mean like having an Android and an iPhone and you know like living in 2017 and all of these things. These are not these are not things you do consciously. It just kind of is what it is. Modernism is a set of philosophies um, that kind of go hand in hand and that have become kind of the common currency amongst people uh, at some point or another. Um, and then after, there's something called postmodernism, which we won't get into. But like the idea that somehow technology is going to solve all of our problems, the idea that every generation is smarter than the generation before it, right? So that's why progress is all, is progress good or bad? Is progress good? Raise your hand if you think progress is good. Yay! Raise your hand if you think progress is bad. It's a trap. Progress might be good if you're like about to finish a project, right? If you're at the edge of a cliff, progress is bad. The word progress has absolutely no uh, uh, has absolutely no denotation of good or bad. It depends on what what's being re- referred to. Okay, evolution revol- is revolutionary. Something is revolutionary. Is revolutionary good or bad? It's it's great. It's wonderful. This revolutionary product. I have a revolutionary product. I have like a headset, and I'm like pacing back and forth. And, I mean, the next new thing and high energy is revolutionary. What, what if what if you have like a like a wonderful system which is just and fair, and the revolution comes and overthrows it? Right? Uh, is revolutionary good or bad? Revolutionary would be bad in that in, in that sense. If you have a bad system and the revolutionary brings a good system, then revolution is good. If you have a bad system and revolution brings another type of bad system, then you know it's it's not really good or bad, is it? But this kind of idea of modernism, what it, what it does is it, it loads all of these terms, it strips them of their denotation and it loads them with this connotation. You have to be smarter. Why? Because we live according to a revealed tradition in which there is such a thing as an absolute truth. Not everything is absolutely right or wrong, but there are certain principles that are absolute truth that are our, uh, uh, what you call our uh, tradition is based on, and you should judge things based on those principles rather than buzzwords that people use and make fools out of one another on a daily basis. Okay, so what do we, what do we say? We say okay, one of the one of the ideas in modernism is what? It's reductionism. It's the idea that you're not going to like like knowledge not, is not this like holistic. This holistic thing. Rather, knowledge is only going to be sought in specificity. So in the old days, people used to study all sorts of different things, and then they had something called philosophy that they used to uh, uh, use in order to synthesize and bring together all of these different fields of knowledge in order to understand something about the world around them. Now what happens is that when you do a master's degree, there's some specificity in what you're studying, and when you do a PhD, there's more specificity, and so you have a, you know, a, a same department has a hundred different professors, each of them knows a whole lot about something very small. Which is great, it's wonderful, it confers some benefits, right? The problem is this, is if you're a doctor, and all you know is a, a great deal of knowledge about how a certain chemical affects like a stretch of nerve, you know, in, in one section of your finger, Maybe you'll find a way of treating the diseases of that one section of the finger and you'll end up killing the whole rest of the body. 
Right? There needs to be a balance between, you know, between, between reductionism and like focusing in on certain things. And specifically the reductionism that focuses in on things that are empirically uh, uh, apparent in front of you. What does empirically apparent mean? What does, what does empiricism? The idea if I cannot see it, taste it, smell it, touch it, it doesn't exist. The idea that if I can't see it, taste it, smell it, touch it, it doesn't exist. So empiricism is taken as some sort of like wonderful truth, right? Even though it's, it's not, I mean, it is a, a source of truth, but it's not the end of truth, right? Okay, if I can't touch it, it doesn't exist. That means that the knowledge that you as a human being and a chimpanzee and a uh, uh, jellyfish that has some sort of basic like nervous system, right? The, the knowledge that you can have is essentially qualitatively of one type. Why? Because if you want to empirically prove fire is hot, you can burn a jellyfish and it will have some reaction. You can burn a, a dog and it has some reaction. You can burn a human being and it has some reaction. Now tell me something, right? Who here, who here has like taken math further than calculus? Right? You've taken math further than calculus, right? The calculations you need to do in order to run the electrical systems in this room and calculate the load that's borne by like, by, by different parts of the building. Can you do those calculations with Roman numerals? You cannot do it with Roman numerals. What's the salient difference between the Roman counting system and between the, the Arabic or really Indian counting system? Sorry, my Arab brothers, we're going to have to pull the rug out from underneath you. This, this, this one is all Desi people, okay? You guys just took our knowledge and gave it to the Europeans, which that's good. That's a good deed. You'll be rewarded for it, inshallah, right? What, it, what is it? What is it? It's zero, right? Zero is a philosophical concept. The fact that you write zero on a piece of paper, it's a philosophical concept. Because zero means nothing. The fact that you wrote something means that it's, it can't actually empirically represent zero. Without zero, you can't do any of these calculations. Can somebody, can somebody show me zero? Can somebody prove that zero exists? By its very definition, it doesn't exist. We need to, we need to what? Transact in the world of things that are not empirically provable because they have a reality. Because they have a reality. Now what happens, mashallah, some kid, uh, their parents, uh, whatever, immigrated to the UK. And, uh, you know, they, they're not super sophisticated people. And the kid was, you know, born and raised on a steady diet of public school and television. And now they go to university because they want to be a doctor. Because this is also in the Quran somewhere, right? Uh, so you want to be a doctor, so you take like some philosophy class and whatever, and some Dawkins-y type gentleman gets up and says, oh, can you uh, point to me and show me where God is? Or can I touch God? Or can I feel Him? Or can I taste Him? Or can I smell Him? Or can I hear Him? Oh, I can't. That means He's your imaginary friend in the sky. Ha 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 ha, stupid, swarthy immigrant, uh, backwards people. Come on, man. Really? Really? If the only thing that exists is what's empirical, right? Tell me something, all the like uh, calculations of thermodynamics have to do with absolute zero, all of this mathematics has to do with zero. Tell me something, tell me something. There's a realm of knowledge higher than empirical knowledge. It's called rational knowledge. It's diminishing day by day amongst people, okay? Rational knowledge is what? It's what we call logic, right? Tell me something, if, if I told you, hey, this phone, by the way, it wasn't here five minutes ago, it just appeared out of the middle of thin air. Right? You said that's stupid. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Things don't work that way. Is there anyone who, if I told them that the phone spontaneously started to exist, 
anyone who thinks that that's not a completely uh, uh, stupid proposition. I apologize. My mother, she saw I said the word stupid. She'd probably smack me, right? Put your hand down, unless you're willing to be made a fool out of right now. I'll take you on. I'll do it. Right, he's just joking, right? Obviously, it's ridiculous. Nobody would believe it. Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, atheist, agnostic. Nobody would believe it because it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Right? In the, in the Middle Ages, right? So you look, read in your biology books, they used to believe that what? They used to believe that like life spontaneously, you know, spontaneous generation life would come up, come about spontaneously. And then like Louis Pasteur did this like his experiments that are still like in some museum in Paris. And now, cause modernism is what? One of the things of modernism, the idea that every uh, generation is somehow smarter and superior to the one that came before it. So in our modern arrogance, we say, ha ha ha, our forefathers were so stupid. I have to agree with you. The idea that like a piece of rancid meat in a cellar is going to turn into a rat spontaneously is a pretty dumb idea. Yeah. I, I have to agree with you. It's not, it's not like the super like smartest idea in the world. However, however, okay, what's, what's, what's dumber to think that a piece of rat, sorry, a piece of rancid meat will turn into a rat or to think that nothing will turn into everything? Surely rancid meat is more than nothing. And surely everything is more than a rat. So by logical, what they call a priori, anyone here taking like a, 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 whatever, Aristotelian logic in Arabic, right? بالطريق الأولى, right? It's a priori analogy. That if the first thing is, is irrational, the second thing is far more irrational. It's qualitatively the same type of irrationality, quantitatively a greater uh, uh, iteration of that same type of irrationality, right? The idea is coming back to what we were talking about we have a principled, we have a principled tradition. We have a tradition that is based on, 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 on usul, right? On these principles. And it is based on a prophetic methodology. That prophetic methodology teaches us what? What to do and how to do it. To jettison the ends is just as much of a betrayal as jettisoning the means because the means themselves are sacred. And the means, one of the salient and dominant characteristics of the means to doing anything to affect change in the world around you is what? Is that you have to do it for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. You have to do it with sincerity. And the idea that you think that your means are inefficient and inexpedient and you have to jettison those inexpedient means in order to come to a more efficient means to getting what you want, that idea has to do with what? Your disbelief in Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Your understanding or your feeling or your thinking that you have a way that's better than their way or you have put more thought into it or have bring more smartness to the way that you're going to do it, then they brought into it. And by all means, do so. Don't call it Islamic afterward. Don't call it Muslim afterward where you're going to have these means that you're going to establish some sort of you know, bizarre caliphate or theocratic state uh, based on breaking all the laws of that sacred uh, tradition that you wish to build a state for. Now, coming to, you know, right now, Asim is like having a heart attack. He says, Shaykh, this is not what I told you to talk about, okay? This is just setting it all up. It, the, the talk actually is very simple, which is what? The times we live in are difficult. If it was hard for our forefathers to live this life of spirituality and sincerity to God, from which they will both make a relationship with the divine 
before they leave from this world, and from which they will make the world a better place. If it was hard for them, one might look at the circumstances around us and think that in this age it's even harder, the deck is stacked even uh, greater against us. But the idea is that, first of all, if you trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to trust that the prescription that He gives you to overwhelm the circumstances around you is going to work. This is why there is one of the uh, adhkar that comes from the Book of Allah Ta'ala and the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is what? Hasbun Allahu or Hasbi Allahu wa Ni'mal Wakil. Allah Ta'ala is enough for me, He's sufficient for me, and He's the best disposer of my affairs. That He chose something for you. He said for you that the means of your livelihood, right? We need our community needs money in order to build masjids, in order to build madrasas, in order to build, you know, in order to feed the poor and the orphans, whether they're Muslims or people of other faith. We need money to do all of these things. Allah Ta'ala is the one who prescribed to you that the only money that you're going to be able to successfully do any of these things through is what? Halal money. You can't use the money of usury. You can't use the money of, of, of lying, cheating, and stealing from people. You can't use the money that's earned through deception. You can't use the money of prostitution. You can't use the money of foul means in order to, in order to affect good ends, good outcomes. One will say, subhanAllah, man, you just locked us out of the entire financial system, right? Hasbunallah. Allah is sufficient for us. He's the best disposer of our affairs. We trust in Him. The idea is that, and there's many examples we can go through. The idea is what? If a person wants to wake up in the morning and be sincere with their Creator, and wants to be sincere with the creation, the deck is completely stacked against you. What's the only one thing that you have in your corner that, that works for you? That will work every single time? <coughs> Allah Ta'ala, the one who created everything from nothing. The one infinite source of power in the universe. The one from which everything originates and everything, no matter how far the rubber band goes back, it's going to have to come back to Allah Ta'ala all that much harder. It's Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And He also made a sunnah for how these things work. And He's described in His book and is described in the sunnah of the Prophet again and again. Allah Ta'ala says in His book, Right? وَزُزِّلُوا حَتَّى يَقُولَ الرَّسُولُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَعَهُ مَتَى نَصْرُ اللَّهِ أَلَا إِنَّا نَصْرُ اللَّهِ قَرِيبٌ That people, there were anbiya, there were prophets, and there were those who were around them. And this is a point of aqidah for us, that the best of Allah's creation are the people who He bestowed prophecy on. And the best of Allah's creation after them are those who served those people directly. Directly. The companions of the anbiya alayhim salam that the people came before you, they were tested and tried, and they were zuzilu, they were shaken, they quaked. Until what? Until they themselves asked the question, when is the help of Allah Ta'ala going to come? Not as a complaint, right? Because this is part of our aqidah, our creed, that the prophets are infallible. Not as a complaint, but just wondering that we're really getting mowed down here. We're doing everything that's right. We've spent every dollar that's in our pocket. We've used all of the intelligence that we have in our brain. We've physically endured as much hunger and thirst and beating as we can take. We've endured all of these stresses. If Allah doesn't help us now, when is He going to help? When is the help of Allah Ta'ala going to come? Allah Ta'ala says what? He says, Allah, inna nasrullahi qareeb. It is at that point and that point alone that the help of Allah Ta'ala is close at hand. One of the many wisdoms of this process is what? Is that if it happened before you got to that point, 
you would have had a genuine doubt inside of your heart as to where this help came from. Was this because of your own intelligence, hard work, piety, sincerity, any of those things? Or, or was it from Allah Ta'ala's help? But the beauty of it is what? Is that when you give everything you have and you exhaust all of your means and that's when the help comes, you know it came from where? It only came from Allah Ta'ala. It only could have come from that source. This happened again and again. There are so many stories regarding how this happened with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Right? One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite stories, Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah, the Aminu Hadhi al-Ummah, he was sent with an expedition of, of uh, I think, 200 men. The hadith is in Riyadh al-Salihin, you can look it up. It's not something that requires that you look through the Sihasitta. In the chapter regarding the virtues of hunger. Right? That what? That he was sent with an expedition with a small sack of dates. So go out, do such and such thing for several weeks and come back. It's definitely not enough provision for, for a, a detachment of a small army. So what happened? Abu Ubaidah being a person who is economically very frugal, he gave everybody a date. He gave everybody one date a day. And so the, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum said, Jabir bin Abdullahi radiallahu anhum, he said that we used to suck on that date like a child suckles at the breast of his mother. Meaning if you ate it, it would have all been gone. So we'd suck on the date and it would dissolve slowly throughout the course of the day. We would still be hungry. So we would take the thick and hard leaves of the uh, desert shrubbery. And then we would put a little water on them and, and pound them with our sticks to make them soft. Just in order so something would fill the stomach. There's no nutrition in it at all. But so the stomach would have something in it so that it wouldn't feel the pangs of hunger quite so badly. Even all of that ran out. What happens is that they see a mound in the distance... So they go and check it out, and somebody realizes this is a beached whale. So what happens, Abu Ubaidah, he forbids them, go, don't, don't eat that beached whale, it's already dead, it's carrion meat, it's haram. Then he thinks about it, he says, what, the detachment of the army is going to die, and we are right now sent out in the path of Allah Ta'ala, and we are the representatives of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he gives them permission to eat. Not knowing that what? That the carrion from the sea is also halal. It's also halal in our sacred law. Right? You don't have to slaughter things that come out of the ocean. So what happens? This beached whale, right? It's a marine mammal, right? So the rest of the hadith describes how they're eating from it and how they're hacking off pieces of meat from it that are the size of like a, 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 a head of cattle and they're roasting it and they're eating it. For days they eat, eat from it, they dry the rest of the meat, they cut it into strips, dry it up and, and store it, preserve it. And they ate probably better than the people in Medina Munawara would have eaten. And what happens when they get back, this animal is so big that what? That the, the, the ribs of it, when they're erected, when they're, they're, they're erected and put uh, upright, that a man riding on an animal could pass underneath it. This is how large this animal was, and they ate from it for so many days. When they come back to the what? When they come back to Medina Munawwara, what happens? They tell the story to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Not only does he approve that they ate from it, he also asks, do you have some of it left with you? I would like to eat from it as well. Why? Because this is a Mubarak, this is a Mubarak riz provision from Allah Ta'ala. Why? Because it came to you when you're at your wit's end. You exhausted everything you had for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, and you're at your wit's end. This is a special provision from Allah Ta'ala. It's a proof of providential, providential endorsement of what you're doing, and the providential help that comes from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala for the person who leaves his home to do what's right and to do what's best. 
This is an understanding our forefathers had. Literally, if you want to go through the stories of the Sahaba anhu during the life of Rasulullah wasallam, and then afterward, and the stories of the awliya and the ulama and the salihin and the righteous people up until this day, you will see again and again and again, those people who combine concern for, the, for making the world a better place with their spirituality, these things happen again and again and again, and they get those things done on those meager means that other people couldn't get done spending 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times that amount. How many people here, your ISOC is the most well-funded organization on campus? How many people is your ISOC, can you think of, there are other, other religious groups that, that have less people who participate less in the student life in their organization, and their funding is almost 10 times as much, and you still have more visibility on campus? I don't want to like pick names and things like that and like whatever, say anything bad about anybody else. The fact of the matter is what? As long as you do what you do with sincerity and belief in Allah Ta'ala, you do what you do with sincerity and belief in Allah Ta'ala and concern for making those around you, improving their, 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 their plight and improving their lot and helping those around you, Allah Ta'ala will always give you from a type of help that cannot come from money, that cannot come from, uh, uh, that cannot come from influence, that cannot come from class and privilege and race or any of these things. Things. Why? Because it has a connection with a higher realm. Empirically, you may not be able to count it and like show it to other people, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. In fact, this is something that our deen teaches us, that the, the abstract is more powerful than the tangible. Right? That the, the, the abstract is more powerful than the tangible. The thing that you cannot see and the thing that's unseen is deeper and more profound and has more of an impact on you and will last forever and will have a longer uh, 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 lasting effect than what? Those things that are physical and mundane and corporeal that are around you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give myself and all of us the tawfiq that we can get our minds out of material things which are good servants and bad and terrible masters. And focus on hearts on the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we neither see nor touch nor smell as a matter of creed. But also as a matter of creed, logically, rationally, we know He's not only necessarily existent, but we feel His existence through our, our, our day and through our night and through our every moment and through our every breath. Allah Ta'ala says in His books, وَذْكُرْ رَبَّكَ فِي نَفْسِكَ تَذَرُّعًا وَخِيفَةً وَدُونًا جَهْلِ مِنَ الْقَوْلِ بِالْغُدُوِ وَالْآسَالِ وَلَا تَكُونُ مِنَ الْغَافِلِينَ Remember your Lord inside your very being. Not just a dhikr of saying, La ilaha illallah, La ilaha illallah, Allah, Allah, that's great, that's wonderful, right? But such a dhikr that's inside of your very nafs, inside of your very being. Fi nafsika tadarru'an wa khifatan, right? In, in, in humility and in awe, in fear. Wadun al jahri min al qawl, something that's so subtle, it's even more subtle than, than the speech of the tongue. Bil ghudui wal asal, by the morning and by the night. And in no case are you ever allowed to be heedless of this remembrance. Allah Ta'ala make this remembrance enter into every one of our hearts so that we can have barakah in the work that we do, that we can trust in Him whenever we need Him. He's the one who is the best disposer of our affairs. He's the one who will give us help in this world. If what we want to see happens in this world or doesn't happen, maybe you plant a seed and after you die, something good comes of it. In Allah, Allah, you'll do your ajr al-muhsinin. Allah Ta'ala, if you did something good, Allah Ta'ala will never waste it, even if you don't see it in, in this life. If you see it in this life or if you don't see it in this life, everybody will meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and see what they have on that day. On that day, He's not going to ask you, did you establish the caliphate or not? On that day, he's not going to ask you, why isn't your masjid the biggest masjid in all of Birmingham? 
Why isn't your eye sock filled with people? Fill the eye sock with people for sure, right? But what are you going to be asked? You're going to be asked about your sincerity and all of those deeds that may be as numerous as the stars in the sky. If there's no sincerity in them, right? In Allah Tayyibu, la yaqbilu illa Tayyib. Allah Ta'ala is pure. He doesn't accept anything other than that which is pure. May Allah Ta'ala give you good deeds that are like the stars in the sky and that are also filled with sincerity by the barakah of this noble remembrance and dhikr. Allah Ta'ala give all of us so much tawfiq. Wa sallallahu tabarak wa ta'ala. Wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammadin. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.